The number one question we get from listeners is, do we have a written step-by-step roadmap to guide you on how to train your dog? We don't, but Standing Stone Supply does. They're the creators of the complete step-by-step dog training program that takes your dog from brand new puppy and gets it well on its way to that finished dog you've always dreamed of. They've mapped out the timelines to help guide you, the videos for every step of the way to show you, and even have the needed gear made into shopping lists to make it easy to supply you. Check out the course at standingstonesupply.com to gain unlimited access for all current as well as future lessons and be sure to use the code GDIY to save 10% at sign up. Being an upland hunter in the south nowadays unfortunately means a lot of travel to try and find birds for my dogs. This means it's even more important that my map scouting is reliable to justify the effort. This is where Onyx comes in. I can honestly say that Onyx directly impacts the level of success I find on my trips. Whether it's the private versus public land boundaries, the expanding number of unique layers and features by state, or the 3D mapping capabilities, my initial step in planning my hunting trip starts with Onyx. To know where you're going, you have to first know where you stand. Check out Onyx Hunt Maps and use code GDIY20 at checkout to save 20%. So many different studies out there on all the different golden retrievers and labs, and you know, they focus on the orthopedic stuff, the cancer stuff, what it does to the behavior, and then obesity, weight gain, and then other things such as the endocrine or like the thyroid and all the hormonal stuff but they forgot about purpose. Have you ever shot a bird that just keeps on flying and you're standing there saying, I swear I hit that bird? Well, good news. Maybe it might not be you, but rather your shotgun. Go check out uplandguncompany.com and construct the perfect shotgun that is not only built to your exact physical specifications, but your preferred looks as well. To some people, a shotgun not only has to perform, but look good while doing it also. Upland Gun Company has made this process super convenient and surprisingly affordable when you consider all of the completely customizable features. Get your shotgun order submitted today so you're standing there with your dog saying fetch, rather than standing there still saying, I couldn't have missed that bird. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of GDIY presented by Standing Stone Supply. My guest this week is Jay Brecky. Jay, how you doing, buddy? Good. How are you doing? Uh, living the dream as always. So we are here today. We're going to start, we're going to really kind of cover the spay and neuter topic. And when it comes to uh, the hunting dogs uh, as a whole, you know, everything from the myths, the the bad advice, the good advice, just kind of the the more updated research in recent times. But uh, first, let's go ahead and start off with you. Kind of introduce yourself, kind of put a pin in the map for everybody and tell everybody what it is that you do. I live in Castle Pines, Colorado, so just south of Denver. I uh, grew up in kind of south central Colorado, a little town called Canyon City. And I am a veterinarian and I specialize in sporting dogs and hunting dogs. Um, growing up, we were big into waterfowl hunting and we own property in Northwest Kansas. So that's where we got our upland hunting done. And uh, my hunting dogs and doing the hunting retriever trials or the HRCH uh, or the hunting retriever club got me into becoming a veterinarian. So I, I thank the, uh, the hunting dogs for my career. And so, um, so yeah, that's kind of my story. I've been a vet now for 10 years, graduated from Colorado State University and own two veterinary practices and uh, we're up to four full-time doctors and staying busy and, um, and, uh, getting ready for the hunting season. Yeah. So, so the sporting dogs, obviously you said you grew up with it and then just 
your love for them and, and the activities and the hunting just kind of bled over. And so when it was time to pick the profession or the direction you wanted to go in, you're like, well, I'm just, I'm going to stick with what I love and that's hunting dogs. Yeah, exactly. And I even, when I was uh, in high school, I got a scholarship from the Hunter Retriever Club for college. Really? So, yep, I was a recipient, which was, uh, which is a huge help. And I mean, I spent most of my teens and even as a young kid as bird boy at those trials and running trials with my own dogs. And that was a big, big part of was my life and my weekends was all the dog trials, lots of dog trials. So, and that was all labs. And now I went the other direction and I don't do much trialing except hunting and I have pointers and grew up with labs and now I'm on pointers. And so it's, things have changed. It's kind of neat to kind of think about it in the light of, you know, the the dogs. You just loved them so much that you wanted to give back to them. And so do you know if the the HRC, do, do they still do that scholarship program? They do. Yeah, they do. So, yeah. That's cool. It, yeah, it's pretty neat. I mean, is it just like, do they just kind of pick one or two two people per year to sponsor or something like that? Do you even know, remember how it works? Yeah, so I remember they they put all of us in the magazine that comes out. And I think that there was maybe about five of us each year, five to ten maybe. I don't know if that's changed. But uh, yeah, it wasn't much, but it always helps. It's kind of cool that they do that. You know, because we we spent a lot of time and dedication to that. You know, my dad is a a judge for all that. And, you know, we've championed a lot of dogs. And we've done, I mean, the amount of dog trials that I've been to in Nebraska and Eastern Colorado and even New Mexico and now Cheyenne, Wyoming and all that. I mean, it's, we spent, that was a big, big part of our life. So, I mean, I got ribbons everywhere and that was just, that was a big deal. So. Well, when did, when did you kind of get a a desire to switch over from the labs over into the pointing world? What do you, was there a specific thing that stands out to you or was it just kind of a, an interest that just kind of developed throughout the years and you just kind of found yourself fading away from the retriever world and getting more and more into the pointer world? Yeah, no, good question. So my last lab, I lost her about eight years ago. And after that, I was in the market for a dog. And as a veterinarian, I saw lots of different puppies come in. I kept seeing these German short hair puppies come in from a kennel in Eastern Colorado that they were very different. They were very sweet, very calm, even at eight, 12 weeks of age. They just weren't your typical short hairs. And I just kind of kept seeing them. And then I saw when they came in at six months and a year, and they were very well trained. And they just had a very, kind of a very good disposition. And I, I then contacted the breeder and they had a female left. And uh, I had an uncle that had German wire hairs and then everyone else in the family, we all had labs and he was kind of the outcast, but I wanted to join him in the, in the pointer world. So we made that change, but also that was right when I got married and my wife wasn't very fond of all the shedding. Oh, I got you. <laughs> so I said, well, let's get one that says short hair on it. I think that'll help a little bit. And, uh, <laughs> so yeah, and we, we never looked back and then, uh, I just got another short hair from the same breeder last year. So I have two and, uh, yeah. They both are, I mean, you'll meet them in a couple of weeks, but they're very, very good dogs and easy to get along with, easy to train. They stay close. They would do horrible in trials though. They're not very, they're not big runners. They, uh, they're, they're good. They're good, close dogs and they hunt well when I'm hunting with the rest of my family that has labs. And so, and I don't have to be anywhere weird to go on the perimeter or whatever. They, they, they stay close and they're, they're what we want and what we need. And I'm, so I'm, I'm very pleased and impressed with this breeder, these dogs, and they're good size. They're not too big. Uh, they're 40 to 50 pounds ish. Nice. And um, yeah, they're just sweethearts. Yeah. That's a, that's a good size for a short hair. Mine's slightly, 
uh, smaller than that, but everybody that listens to this knows that I, I like my pocket rockets. But uh, as yep. far as short hairs go, you know, that 45, 50 pound mark, that's kind of a sweet spot for me in the breed. Yeah, it is. So, yep. Yeah. Yep, I agree. So, so as you said, you know, I'll, I'll be, I'm looking forward to meeting them here in a few weeks. You know, by the time we're recording this, we're, we're finally going to link up and uh, do some hunting in Colorado, some blue grouse and ptarmigan. So is that primarily what you focus on in Colorado or, or like you started off with uh, your property in Kansas, you just kind of split time up there when, when it allows, or do you have a preference over either one? Yeah. So really the, the Kansas was the, was the big deal. And we had a duck lease in Southeast Colorado on the Arkansas river growing up. And so that's where the labs came into play, but we would make four to six trips every year for Kansas, Bob White and, and pheasants. We would always do a Thanksgiving trip as a family. We would always do uh, every December 26th after Christmas, we would all hop in the truck and, and, uh, head out there, um, for, for hunting. And then, uh, and then we started the the way that we found our ptarmigan spot actually was some high school friends of ours that were on the cross country team. They'd go up and train and hunt, run some of the 14ers or hike them. And then they said, Hey, we found ptarmigan. And I said, Where at? <laughs> and I uh, look on the map and, and find that you can hunt them there. And so we got into that. Uh, and then we kind of went on a little bit of a lull of not really doing that. Um, the last time that I was dusky grouse hunting, I my dad actually tore his knee, his ACL. He fell on a log there. So got that fixed. And then we've been up there since then, but that's a, uh, it's kind of a rough country. And then during college, kind of another little lull of hunting and mostly just Kansas. But then in the last four or five years, I've really kind of dove into uh, the ptarmigan and then even sage grouse in Northern Colorado. I, that's kind of my thing. You know, that's just a two day season, two bird limit, very minimal. And so every the opening of that, I always go up and always, always get a bird or two. And that's, uh, so that's kind of where I'm at now. So I'd say that Kansas is still the majority of what we do, but I, I personally love the the alpine hunting and the mountains of, of Colorado. That's just pretty, pretty special when you're at that high of altitude and it's, it's pretty neat. I haven't spoken to too many people out of Colorado, but the ones that I have kind of mirror your sentiment to where, there's obvious opportunities within the state, but I don't know if it's the terrain or the level of commitment or effort that you have to put into it that drives them to, you know, the neighboring states because Colorado kind of has a pretty unique uh, location geographically to a bunch of different opportunities. You shoot a little southwest, you're you're in desert quail country, you shoot a little north and and, you know, you're you're in Wyoming and, and sage grouse and sharp tails and, you know, you can go northeast Nebraska. It, people own a map, they can look at it themselves. It's like, it kind of, it's the gateway to a whole bunch of different options. But the, the thing that's really stands out to me in Colorado and obviously why I'm kicking off the season down there is to do something a little different and hunting those high altitudes, which I've never really done. And two species that I know next to nothing about. So I'm excited to kind of explore that and, and kind of wet my whistle with that, uh, just new experience, but you said something that I, I want to come back to. You said that your dad tore his ACL while up there hunting ptarmigan. <laughs> uh, that was actually the dusky, the dusky grouse spot or the blue grouse. Dusky grouse. Okay. So when you're at that high altitude, it, how far away from the truck was it? Like, talk to me about what you guys had to do to get him back. Did he just have to grit his teeth and deal with it coming back down a mountain to get back to the truck? Like, what do you do? Yeah, no, he he shot two grouse on the way back to the truck. And then that was, uh, <laughs> then that fall we went deer hunting uh, 
and that night it snowed 18 inches and that next morning he, he we went and hiked through all the snow and kept saying something was wrong but he just muscled through it and we shot two deer and then went back and then that next april he finally got it fixed and so uh we didn't really know how bad it was but yeah so you know i've backpacked in for ptarmigan before most of the time we're, we're very close to a truck and there's all sorts of different trailheads but the, the time that i backpacked in was nice because you're you're camping at that altitude you're very uh, used to it uh you're very close to all the different kind of honey holes of all the ptarmigan but the problem is is that when those storms come in and the rain and trying to keep everything dry the dogs are miserable and especially the short hairs like they just get they mine got real cold and it's the backpacking in for the ptarmigan, I, I thought would be a good idea. And it, it was actually pretty tough. Uh, we, you know, we, we did get into them, but when those storms come in, you, you, you kind of want to bail and go lower and go back to camp or go to go do something else. And so the, the ptarmigans, the, the morning is the ticket there and then watch the weather. But the, so most of the time what you'll experience is that we'll, we'll be able to be very close to the, to the pickup. You raise a, a couple questions in my head on that as mainly how the dogs react to the to the environment you know we talk about us having to acclimate and adjust to the high altitude especially when you know someone such as me just lives in the southeast and you know flatlander so to speak but what what about the dogs do they have the same acclimation timeline or process that we do you know do you need to kind of give them a, a day or two so like when we come out there obviously i'm trying to give myself a day or so before hunting how does that impact the dogs in terms of their conditioning and their their condition going into a hunt? Yeah, I know it's a good question. So, um, so honestly, I never really saw a difference. Now, I, I do live at six thousand feet, so my dogs are used to six thousand feet. And then when we go up to ten, five, eleven, all even sometimes up to you know twelve, I don't really much go much higher than that. A lot of people talk about thirteen, fourteen thousand feet. I haven't experienced that yet from where I found them, but. Uh, as far as their stamina and energy, I, it just doesn't affect them. What does affect them, though, is their feet, the rocks, the terrain. That's it's, You'll see pretty quickly that their feet are going to be red. We want to make sure their nails are trimmed down very short. And that that's the biggest thing I see is the is their feet. And then you'll get into those rock screes, which is basically just the, you know, the areas where the two peaks kind of create a big valley of rocks that come down. And uh, sometimes you have to cross those and it's... You know, we're, it's a struggle for us to get two feet across and they got four. And so we got to make sure they're not falling through cracks and holes and getting, sometimes they'll get pinned and we have to go pick them up and get them away. But, but as far as the, uh, them running around and, and you watching their stamina, you might see a little bit of a difference. Uh, but I, I don't think it'll be like what you're feeling <laughs> personally. So, but, but yeah, it's a good question and they seem to power through it. They're a little tougher than us. <laughs> So, I mean, in terms of the feet, do you do you just boot them up to be safe or do you, are your dogs just kind of used to the rocks? So, like, for instance, down here with me, you know, I condition my dogs year-round. They're in great shape. But down here in the southeast, we have a lot of grass. Like, it's honestly a little difficult finding the pavement or, or gravel that's safe to run on for extended amounts of time. So, for more or less, like, my dog's pads are in pretty good condition, especially for the region that I live in. But obviously, coming from Tennessee to Colorado, and you get on that rock, I'm I'm kind of curious if I should just be safe and start off with the boots to begin with, or just kind of give it a chance and see how how that pans out first. Yeah, I mean, do your best to condition them as much as you can on dirt and gravel. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the boots with where we'll be going. Uh, the dusky spot that's probably not going to be an issue, but that again, that's more wooded. But 
the the issue I have with the boots with ptarmigan hunting is I do feel that they'll be more unstable uh, with how that terrain is, and I would, I would be very worried of their balance and more injuries from that. So just because yeah, they need all their all their knuckles out to really kind of feel and and know their their balance, and so I I, I would not recommend boots, but do the best you can to toughen them up. And so I even started working with my dogs with just getting them out and running them and going to dog parks that have gravel and throwing the tennis ball and just toughening up their feet. But, you know, they, they get kind of red and they lick them, but they seem to kind of bounce back. And if it's just for a few days, they'll, they'll seem to be fine. But, um, but yeah, I'd, I'd pass on the boots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not the biggest fan of boots either for, for some of the reasons that you suggested. I use them like an emergency or say they blow a pad or something that can, it can salvage a trip. But I, I just, there's something in me like the stabilizers of the toes and the direction. Like, I just feel like, you know, you start putting a sole on a dog and, and their feet, it's not like ours. I think, and even, you know, some people even argue that, you know, we're a little bit more dependent on shoes and boots than what right. we're genetically supposed to be anyways. Yep. But, uh, Anyway, that that's a whole different topic for another day, something that, you know, we might have to circle back around when we're in camp and talk about this in a little bit more detail. Let's uh let's start getting into the nuts and bolts of the of this topic. You know, when you talk about spay and neutering your your dog, obviously, you know, you're kind of talking about two different worlds when you're talking uh companion or just pet owners. And then sporting dog owners. So it's you know, it's obviously the same procedure, the same results. But there's different considerations, different purposes, different reasons why somebody may or may not do it. So I guess let's start there to where just the different mentality of the dog owners in general, not even just from a spay and neuter concept, but do you find that like compared to just regular pet owners, compared to sporting dog or purpose-driven dogs, dog owners, are they a little bit more aware or caught up to their needs and and I'd say sound advice for caring for their dogs that compared to just regular pet owners. Yeah, no, I do find luckily that a lot of my um, sporting dog, hunting dog, or even the working dogs and the police dog clients, they seem like they are, they're more under, they've done their research and they've really understand the importance of uh, keeping their dogs intact. And you said it best where you just brought up purpose because in all the, you know, prior to this podcast and kind of what we've talked about before, you know, so many different studies out there on all the different golden retrievers and labs. And, you know, they, they focus on the orthopedic stuff, the cancer stuff, what it does to the behavior and then obesity, weight gain, and then other things such as the endocrine or like the thyroid and all the hormonal stuff, but they forgot about purpose. And that's where we come into play as having our hunting dogs is we have a purpose that's very rare, you know, on a, on a day's work, if I see 30 dogs that come in, there might be zero to one of those are hunting dogs. Um, and I actually see quite a few hunting dogs compared to a lot of other veterinarians. And so we'll see a handful a, a week if that, um, it's kind of interesting. The, uh, out of all the different papers and things out there that I was kind of looking into, there was only one that I found that actually mentioned sporting dogs or hunting dogs and it was from the uh what's called the american animal hospital association which stands for aha and they quote an experienced dog owner who brings in a puppy they want to train to become a competitive field trial dog will get a very different recommendation than a client who is a first-time dog owner and just wants a nice family pet so out of all the different studies that are out there 
Someone mentioned it, <laughs> Just, and that's, they, that's what we need to go They get bonus like, I points. I do agree with that. <laughs> yeah, and so when I found that, I was just like, ah, sweet, highlight save. You're going to talk to Nick about it, because that's finally someone nailed the purpose. Um, all the other studies are, oh, you're going to have elbow dysplasia, you're going to have cancer, you're going to have this, you're going to have that, do this, that. But the purpose and what we do is is very important, and that's, you know, to to kind of keep them in keep them intact for, for many reasons. It, it, it's really interesting, you know, here, here locally on my end, I, I've been kind of going and, and speaking with some county officials and executives uh, within the local government down here. Cause they're, they're, they have a really bad homeless dog issue in my county. And, and so they're, they just keep pushing different ordinances and trying to force people to spay and neuter all their dogs. And, and it's just like, I had to go speak to them and, and kind of give them a different side of the, uh, debate, if you will, and kind of inform them of like, look, the people that that really have a purpose behind their dogs, whether that's hunting or herding or just any working dog, we kind of come at it from a different light. And if you start trying to require everybody to spay and neuter their dogs or put put an ordinance on it or or whatever you want to call it, you're you're not seeing the big picture. And to their credit, they were really receptive of the information and just kind of talking about it. They just you don't know what you don't know, and uh, and a lot of people on the pet dog side of the world, they they have no understanding or can't even relate to what somebody with an actual working dog uh, deals with or might even care about. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. So, well, I mean, look at this. I uh, found another interesting thing that I felt was an error in one of the studies, and it's actually one of the good studies that was not only peer reviewed but very well done. And with the discussion or the uh, conclusion, they they said the two breeds of a golden retriever and a Labrador retriever are similar in body size, confirmation, behavior characteristics, and they share a similar developmental background as upland game retrievers. Upland game retrievers. <laughs> Think about that. When we hear that, we go, "Now they're they're waterfowl and they're upland. There's upland game retrievers. This, they're." So that right there just shows that they don't really know what they're talking about when it comes to what we're talking about. And I'm not trying to throw them under the bus or anything, but they could just say retrievers. They don't need to say upland game. I thought that was kind of interesting that that's, you know, especially Labrador and Goldens. I mean, they were more waterfowl way before upland. So that's that was interesting. <laughs> the, the, the author of that article Googled it or went and searched YouTube and found one source. And the first one that they found, it, it was somebody using it for Upland or something like that. And and that that's where the ball stopped. And and that's kind of the case in a lot of articles or quote unquote research papers to where there's so much information. And if somebody has a deadline, you know, they might, they may not be doing it on purpose, but they may just kind of Google it, think that they, they have it. You know, we're all guilty of it from time to time, checking in on a world that we're unfamiliar with. You do a Google search, okay, quick, got it, jot it down, and they completely miss all of that other stuff behind it called context that they, they're unaware that, yes, while a lab might go retrieve some upland, they're primarily primarily used for waterfowl, for first and foremost. And, then, you know, of course, there's plenty of people that use them for both or just upland, but, yeah, it's just... It's funny when you start talking or reading resources like that. It drives me up the wall. It's just like I wish that I could talk to the author and be like, really? You couldn't have 
clicked on a second or third link before posting that. <laughs> yeah, it's just like Hollywood. You know, they'll show a picture of an eagle and it's a red-tailed hawk making the sound. <laughs> right, yeah, same, yeah. Same thing, so. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's what's interesting about veterinary medicine is that there's just so many opinions, so many different studies. And so that's why, you know, and I'll, I'll leave you my email that you can post for everybody if they want to contact me just because... You know, I'll say some things that people might disagree with and maybe controversial, and I'm happy to answer any of those questions and just want people to understand that uh, it's a, you know, there's there's not one size that fits all with this. And that's why, you know, anything that you and I are going to talk about, take with a grain of salt, but please reach out to me if, if there's any other questions, because I'm happy to help, especially with boarding dogs, hunting dogs. Like those are, I really enjoy helping out those folks because this, there's a big difference in, in this field and opinions. And so... Uh, that's the way it is. Well, let let's break down. Let's kind of hit the the wave tops on everything you just said from from the cancer and and all of the other reasons why we may or may not want to get our dogs fixed. Why in the sporting dog world, like what are the high notes that we as you know myself as a, a sporting dog owner? Why would I care? Like, what are the considerations that I would want to discuss with my own individual vet? The first thing is uh, the orthopedic health, obviously, because most of us, uh, you know, we're not, we're getting a lot of these puppy as puppies. And so we, we have the decision of when we're going to get them spayed and neutered compared to rescuing an animal or adopting one that already has, has done. So, so I think when it comes to orthopedic and you have an eight week old puppy, you then can say, okay, I have a. 35 pound German short hair, or I have a 110 pound lab and I have a female and I have a male and all the differences there. And it's, it's actually been proven. And I actually just, uh, we, you know, I have an orthopedic surgeon that works for us and I was picking his brain and he, he's been an orthopedic surgeon for 30 years. He really understands things. I trust him, trust him dearly. He's shown that the estrogen and testosterone influence uh, or he's we discussed that it, it, it's very important for the, what the growth plates do, and um, you know it's it's been proven that a lot of these dogs that have been neutered or spayed at a younger age, their estrogen specifically, even for the males, uh, really halts the growth plate development. So a lot of the dogs that are spayed, neutered, younger are going to be taller. Their long bones are taller, longer. But with that, you have basically longer, thinner, weaker potential. Uh, now, it's not always the case. But um, so, you know, the, the question is, is every breed has growth plates that mature at a certain age. But in general, um, having the testosterone or estrogen influence um, for a much longer time does help with, you know, overall more bone maturity and, and less orthopedic issues. Now... The University of Wisconsin-Madison is actually doing a study right now on the uh, tearing your ACL or, or your cruciate in dogs. They think that there might be a genetics link. And so that then is a whole nother ball game compared to spaying and neutering. But I think for all hunting dogs that if you have a male dog to wait as long as you can, because once you get past that bone maturity level, then the orthopedics conversation's out. And then you're stuck with, okay, well, why now am I going to keep my dog intact? And it's, they've actually done studies where they've shown that the estrogen and testosterone have the same effect on bones. But after a certain age, the testosterone actually has 
more of an effect on muscle mass, energy, you know, a controlled weight. And so that's why when you have a older male and you say, well, I might get him neutered now because he's past that 18 month window or his joints should be good. Well, you have to keep in mind that the testosterone for your hunting dog is going to be helping with recovery, his stamina, his behavior, cognitive thinking, problem solving. And so that testosterone is important for that component after and all the different hormones. And so that's kind of the orthopedic spiel. And, you know, it's interesting is that all these different studies have been, there's a lot been a lot of holes poked in through them. And what really, what really we need to do is, is try to get to more breed specific studies. So then as veterinarians, we can make breed specific recommendations. Now I did find an article from 2020 that was peer reviewed, pretty good article. And it talked about 35 breeds. So I went through the breeds and I counted three that are hunting dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. And so I was like, okay, well, we're, we're on our way there. Um, but it was uh, basically just discussing the pros and cons of before six months, after six months, never do it now and all the different variations. And it's very confusing. And so it's all over the place, in my opinion. And um, when you go back to purpose, which is our purpose, it's, it's very simple. You, you want to keep them intact in as long as you can. Now with the females, it's just so different because you have to deal with the heat cycles and the pregnancies. And, um, you know, I even had a lab in high school where she was intact and we had a six foot fence around their property. And then she was also in a 12 by 12 fence. And there was some weird neighborhood dog that rode through both fences to get to her. And so we had to get her spayed after that. And you would have never thought that dog would have broken through that, but you know, it was a smaller town. There's more stray dogs and tack dogs. And so, um, it is possible. You think you might be a responsible owner, but those male dogs will will search them out for sure. So, well, I tell everybody, you know, you can be a responsible owner, but the the neighbor or the guy down the street can be an irresponsible owner that completely just overshadows all your precautions. You know, just, like you yep. just described, you have them out on a kennel run, or you have them out doing their business in the backyard. Uh, it, you know, male dogs will go through uh, some some crazy obstacles to, to get to that for sure. Yep. But you bring up a good point. You know, this was when I reached out to you, uh, initially to, to try and do this topic. That was the main thing I wanted to clear up with you was just some of the confusion and, and specifically the timeliness. It, it's like, even within veterinarians, you, you ask one, you get a completely different answer than when you ask the second one and you hear, you know, around males, you, you can kind of, it, it seems like it's becoming a little bit more common answer to just say 18 months, you know, around 18 months, fully full skeletal maturity. Uh, so it seems like it's leveling out for the males to where you're getting a consistent return on, on it, how you should proceed. The question or the confusion really comes on the female perspective when you start talking about, do you do it before the first heat cycle? After the first heat cycle, do you wait a couple years, and or or do you do it after they have a litter or two? Uh, you know, I understand. Correct me if I'm wrong. The females have a little bit more health concerns as they get older if they're left intact, such as like cancer risk and and stuff like that. So let's stick with the females for a second. And let's talk about the considerations in, in the way you see it. And like you said, 
there's so much conflicting information out there. So I know that you're only, you're just going to kind of go with the best advice that you can give maybe based off of your surgeons and everybody you've worked with, but where do you stand in terms of best practice when it comes to females? You know, I have two German short hairs. One, well, nine years ago now, I, I spayed her before her first heat cycle. And then the one I have now, uh, I have yet to spay her. She already had one heat cycle. So that's where I've changed my opinion. So right now I stand, if you do have a hunting dog, I, I do believe that you should let them have one heat cycle for um, many reasons. So, you know, and it's, but there's a lot of different variables. My high school dog, she had multiple heat cycles, multiple. I mean, I didn't spare until she was five or six. And she, at the age of 10, tore her ACE or her knee and cruciate and then she died of one of the worst cancers i've ever seen so that's an outlier of ha- letting the dog have multiple heat cycles staying intact until she was six and then she has all the outcomes that you're not supposed to have but again that's just a one dog small population sample but you're going to see situations like that but now i i truly feel and what i recommend to all the, the hunting dogs that i see the females i say let them go through a heat cycle and then you know then we'll consider spaying them after that because once they have you know, two to three, then you're getting into maybe more issues because the mammary disease, you know, the the mammary tumors, breast cancer, the infected uterus known as pyometra, some of the complications of having a female dog in heat. You have to remember those are very common, you know, later on in life, maybe three, four, five years of age, not one to two. Don't get me wrong, that still can happen. So you then have a nice little window of making that decision of, having them have a heat cycle without those concerns, knowing that it's going to be an older dog issue. Um, same with males too. You know, they're going to have prostatitis, prostatic cancer, BPH like men get all that stuff more likely uh, later on. Now, one of my buddies that's a veterinarian in uh, Arizona works for a houndsman uh, and was three-year-old stud hound named Cougar. They're on a lion hunt uh, last March, and they thought that he fell off a cliff because he came back with his right leg just completely swollen, barely walked, super painful. So they they took him in, and they thought, oh, he fell, and we're going to take x-rays, and he's got bruising and all that. No, he had prosthetic cancer at the age of three, and they unfortunately had to put him down. Literally, he was the stud, mountain, the stud lion dog, and so that's another outlier but i would say him plus one other dog in my career i've heard of that after 10 years so that's how rare it is Um, but if you were to go through that your next dog you're probably going to be thinking different about keeping them intact because you don't want that to happen to a three-year-old that's pretty heartbreaking and I, i think it's really important to to emphasize when you talk about outliers you know people hear that word and maybe they don't fully recognize what we're saying because it's just like you know, somebody listening to that, they might be like, oh man, that's horrible, but it does happen. It's like an outlier is a statistical like anomaly almost to where you're going to have these special cases. And no matter, it's not just on this topic, it's every topic in life to where you're going to have special case scenarios that you just can't account for. And so it's like, yeah, take it in stride, look at it, try and decipher it with the information that's presented to you. But you're not going to be able to include that in in the common knowledge or, or common like what you advise because it's just so rare to where it's just like, yeah, it happened, but statistically it doesn't happen. And some people, you know, that won't, it doesn't matter what you tell them or show them, they're going to be stuck on that. So, well, my dog did this that, you know, I know I have a buddy with that dog. It's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not even I'm not calling you a liar, but I'm just telling you like that's not the norm so you you can't even present that in 
in the discussion almost. I mean, you do, but but it, it's such a small impact in the in the you know greater pool of information and, and data. Yeah. I mean, we see it all the time. I mean, how many times you say drink coffee, don't drink coffee, drink red wine, don't drink red wine. It causes this, this, this. Well, everybody still does it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've been listening to a, a health audio book uh, as, I, as I like run in, in the mornings and, and they're talking about uh, centenarians, the people that live to be over 100. And it would shock you how many of those literally do nothing that they advise us <laughs> to be healthy throughout our lives. Like they were talking about one guy that like he literally contributes him living to be over a hundred to the fact that he smokes a pack a day and drinks whiskey yeah. every night. And, you know, if me and you go do that more than likely statistically, we're going to be dead in our sixties or seventies <laughs> and, and here he is living to be over a hundred. So again, those outliers are, are important to notate them for what they are. I want to circle back to the female discussion because when we say heat cycles, typically on average, when does uh, when should we first expect a female's first heat cycle? You know, you hear it from, you know, very early on to some dogs take up to 18 months. You know, typically on average, what are we looking at for the first cycle? Yeah, so they say it can happen as early as six months, as late as 18 months. On average, I find that like some of the giant breeds or much bigger dogs are going to be later. But a lot of the labs and the um, pointers and uh, setters, I mean, I find that they're coming into heat usually nine, ten months of age, pretty on average. Uh, the other thing that you can always look at, especially with the hunting dogs, is that we're we're also very familiar with the the parents, and so usually when the mom had her heat cycle and you can ask the breeder and you have a female it's, it's, that's pretty accurate as well i find and that's never been proven or anything but i i find that when the so say you have a, a german short hair and this happened with my older one where i spayed her at 13 months and she was never even close to coming in the heat cycle i contact the breeder and she's like oh yeah she's about 18 the mom was about 18 months and she's the one that said hey i think that there's a link with mom and daughter having correlated heat cycles and i and then I, I feel like I have seen that. And again, that's not proven, but I think that's something to consider is when you buy a female puppy and you just say, hey, just out of curiosity, when did mom come into heat? And they say, oh, 10 months. Well, put it on your calendar. It might be that way. That That's really interesting. Um, you know, back to the purpose talking point, when you're talking about after the first heat cycle, if that's the, the, the best advice that we can give is, you know, if you're going to spay them, spay them after the first heat cycle. It's pretty common within in the sporting dogs to where somebody gets a female out of a litter that they might be eyeing to be one of their their breeding bitches, but it's not a long enough time period to really prove out, right? So, you know, if you're talking about a puppy has their first heat cycle at six months, that's not enough time to really weed out to determine if you want to use her as breeding stock or not. And then conversely, you know, if it's 18 months, you know, even 18 months is still pretty young to where some people, you know, it takes two or three years to figure that out. So if you're in that boat to where it's a possibility, I might want to use her as breeding stock. Are we losing, like what, what's the drawback for waiting longer to see how they develop before we make that decision? Are we losing anything at, at, at cutting it at three months or three years old, as opposed to that 18 month mark? Yeah, so the only thing that you really might risk or lose is your the chance of mammary cancer will go up, um, but again, still pretty low. Or if they get it, it's rarely going to be 
a horrible metastatic situation. We just don't see that. Um, or I would be more worried about the infected uterus pyometra. Um, I've seen, you know, I mean, I remember I had a, a German shepherd dog that was, uh, they're going to use for bite work and police dog. And at the age, I mean, at, at her second heat, she had a severe pyometra uterus infection and we had to spare early. And it was just, and I've probably seen more of that than anything where the uterus gets infected just from, well, it's just a common complication. So that, that's the only thing I would say that you're risking. But if you say, well, I, I really like this female and she, she's had, you know, she comes into heat at six months. Now I know she's going to come into heat probably at 12 months and then again at 18. So you're going to, before the dog is two, which is what, you know, the Orthopedic Foundation of America wants for a lot of these hip, elbow and ocular, you know, certificates before breeding, you might have to go through two or three heat cycles before you can say, I got a, I've ruled out a lot of genetic issues. I have all the testing done. Now I'm ready to breed. So but I, I think it's a it's an okay chance to take. Um, I think that if that happens and you have a female dog and you know you want to breed her and you're going to say, I'm going to wait till she's after two, just be ready for those types of issues and watch for mammary development and watch for, you know, the the pyometra clinical signs, which are, you know, they get pretty sick with that and they have vaginal discharge. And so that's, that's I don't think it's a big deal to answer your question. The, the pyometra, at least just anecdotally speaking when i'm when i'm talking to everybody it seems like it's it's becoming more prevalent you're you're hearing more and more about it do you feel like that is because of the spay equation to where people are either getting it done too early or or too late can you speak to that or is there any data to kind of say if it is showing itself more often? Are you seeing it in your clinic more often yourself? Um, yeah, I would say so. I think there's a big demographic part of that too, where some maybe smaller towns or areas where they're not as quick to Spain, then you're going to see more of that. But I would say that the trend of waiting to spay your dogs is, you know, obviously that's why we're having this discussion, is, you know, going towards waiting. And so you're going to see an increase in that. Um so yeah, I would say, but I would say that there's really no other genetic or environmental component that would be changing that besides just waiting. I just think that, and I don't, yeah, I don't think that there would be, you know, a, a genetic or environmental, I think it's just very, very random on whether or not that that in uterus gets infected and, and goes to that degree of, um, you know, surgical situation. So. So is there anything worth noting or highlighting specifically in terms of females before we kind of go over to the male side? Yeah, I think it's pretty simple that if you do have a female and uh, you ha and they're a hunting dog, I would say let them have a heat cycle. Keep a log, keep track of it. Keep track and watch for any mammary lumps and bumps and notify your vet right away. And then also keep in mind that one of the big issues you might see is uh, – Pyometra, which is the infected uterus, and I think everyone needs to be aware of what that looks like. And you'll notice right away that your your female will stop eating, be real lethargic. Um, sometimes they get kind of a distended abdomen or belly, and they'll have vaginal discharge. And you take them into your vet, we'll run some blood work and do an ultrasound and determine it. And unfortunately, she needs surgery and she needs to be spayed. There's no other way to handle that. And so that's just what's going to happen. If that's the way it is, that's the way it's meant to be. And so that's that's kind of my my recommendation for that. And then one other thing, too, that uh, can happen is uh, urinary incontinence in females. They think that, you know, if you spay them too early, too young or before a heat cycle, that they're more 
uh, more prone to develop urinary incontinence or, or leaking urine uh, when they get older. And that, that has its own realm of studies and opinions as well. You know, I look back at my brother's lab that he had from um, and when I was in college, and we let her have two heat cycles, and we spayed her laparoscopically, which when you spay laparoscopically, you just do an ovariectomy where you just remove the ovaries, and you kind of, you don't really, you're not very, you're not really close to the bladder, or, you know, tail end of the dog, so less likely to hit or inflame anything, and she still developed it, and so <laughs> there's your outlier again, but I, I, there, I think there is correlation with a benefit of waiting or letting your dog have a heat cycle that you might decrease the chance of your dog having urinary incontinence and then needing medication for the rest of your life. So, well, that's, I'm on that right now with my short hair, Rachel, you know, she's uh, going on 10. She got, we had her spayed when she was five or six, kind of like your example earlier. And just this summer, she started to wear just urinary incontinence. And of course it's just, it's not that big of a deal. It is, you know, it is a, a medication that you got to throw in our food. And it, 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 what? how do you pronounce it? Fenlopropanolin yeah, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's just, I, I just throw one pill, 25 milligrams in it, takes care of it. So it's, it's not that complicated. I haven't had an issue with them eating it, but it is just one more thing to keep track of and, and pay for, which gets kind of annoying, but it is what it is. So you know, it, who knows? I mean, obviously she got fixed at five or, or she got fixed at five or six. So, you know, that, that could have played a part in it now, but you know, who, who's to say that she wouldn't have developed this without it? I don't know. Right. Right. So let's move on into the males because you, you talked about earlier, you know, the importance of, of these hormones, testosterone, estrogen, and, you know, believe it or not, you know, both males and females have a little bit of both. So, you know, in the males, you, you talked about how they have they have risk just like the females in terms of ca cancer and prostate cancer and, and all that stuff. So let's kind of jump on into the males the same way we did with the females, if you're good with it. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. So when it comes to the orthopedic side of, of males, um, you know, obviously our most of the hunting dogs are going to be large to well, large breed, uh, maybe even bigger. And just like with the females, the orthopedic wise, you do want to wait, you know, past, wow, you know, what they say for the breed when the growth plates mature, because you want to have good growth plates. Um, but then when we get into the, the males, you're not going to have the heat cycles. You're not going to have the false pregnancies, the pyometras, the mammary tumors and all that. You're now going to have maybe behavior issues, um, jumping fences, aggression, uh, you know, you're hunting with another buddy that has a male dog and they are just fighting all the time. So you're going to have that issue. Um, a lot of the prostate disease, like I mentioned before, is going to happen later on in life. And so if you were going to neuter a male dog, if you want to consider, if you're going to do it, maybe shoot for five, six years of age uh, or never um, and just watch for, you know, prostate issues. Um but that's that's pretty much the biggest thing with the male dogs is going to be the prostate, the behavior, um, and then you know obviously you, you can't forget that weight and obesity is a big part of all these as well. That those females and males that, that when they have their gonads, they're going to be leaner, and so and like I talked about earlier, I I do think that you know I'm I'm telling you now if you have a female to go ahead and get her spayed after heat cycle, but with a male, uh, I'm saying you know it's 
when he hits 18 months, you, you, it's, you can't just say, okay, he's, he's hit 18 months and now let's do it because he's, his bones are good. You have to remember that for what we do, those male dogs, that, that's when the testosterone compared to the estrogen has proven to help with muscle recovery and endurance and stamina. And I think that's key. And I, I grew up with always having female dogs. And so it's harder for me to speak from this, but obviously I have friends that have male dogs and, and all that. And I just find that they're, when they're intact, they're, their endurance and their muscle recovery for what we do is, is important. And, you know, we want them to hunt till they're, you know, 12, heck, they can make it to 13, 14. If they're intact, that's going to be beneficial. And there's a reason you don't see neutered cop dogs. <laughs> uh, most of these police dogs, working dogs, uh, they're, they're intact. Or even if you're going through the airport and you have the bomb sniffing dog, you know, they're usually intact as well. And so I think that's, that's important. Now just keep in mind, you don't want behavior issues, marking issues, um, running away all the time. And obviously you don't want prostate issues. A lot of the prostate stuff can be fixed and treated with neutering if that does happen. So it's a good solution, but yeah, I think the male dog, that's an easier. So if someone comes in and they have a, a, a puppy German short hair and it's a, it's a male, it's a very easy discussion for me. Female, I have to weigh in lots and lots of things. Cause even if it is a hunting dog and they're, they live in Denver and there's ordinance not to have that. And they board their dog cause they go to the, on vacation and the boarding place won't take them cause they're not spayed and all that. Yeah, I have to, I have to put all that into uh, the equation that sometimes doesn't let us have, let her have a first heat cycle and the male dogs. It's, much easier. Now, obviously some of the kennels and boarding places and city ordinance want your male dogs to be neutered too, but um, it's a much easier discussion with the male puppies in my opinion. So, I mean, are there any studies or real data? And, and I hesitate to to ask this because again, context is king here. You know, with all these studies, it's, it's almost, well, how did you come up? How did you quantify or, or classify these situations and cases within these dogs, but I'm just curious, what are the studies in, in terms of odds that you a male dog might get prostate issues if they go unfixed, as opposed to you know the ones that don't ever get it? And I and again, context is king. You know the the genetics, the type of line, heck, the nutrition, lifestyle. I understand all that goes into it, but is there anything in terms of just simple basic like you know, hey, you know. 25% of uh, unfixed male dogs will have some sort of prostate issue down the road. Yeah. So kind of depending on the study, what I found was anywhere from five to 10 to 15 kind of percentage points. It's nothing crazy like, you know, 70, 80 um, of, you know, what types of cancer or orthopedic stuff they're going to have. But a lot of that is, is still pretty minimal. And again, you're going to have that later on in life, which is where you might neuter them anyway. And um, might not matter as as much, but um, I will say that you know the dogs that are neutered very young. I've I've only seen maybe literally one beagle one time that was neutered at six months that had prostate cancer. But as far as dogs that are that come in with prostate cancer or um, hernias or um, prostate infections or BPH, those dogs usually are intact, but they're quite a bit older. And so, but when you look at the percentage wise, I mean, you're talking. You're talking still in the lower percentage wise that I think that that's, those are odds that you should take. Yeah. I mean, five, 10, 15%, that's, that's not a, a, a huge, scary statistic, but it's definitely within the realm of possibility. But like you said, a lot of these issues, you catch it, 
you just neuter them, and and that's probably a, a good enough fix in a lot of cases. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, but you know, what's interesting about a lot of those studies is that, especially the cancer ones, when you really look at those, that they are a little bit limited in certain areas that I like to point out because one of them, the sample size is pretty limited. In you know, when you actually look at how many dogs are actually out there, it's kind of interesting that in those articles, there's no veterinary oncologists or board certified cancer doctors. I thought that was interesting when I, when I was looking into that. And then a lot of these, the intact dogs that their studies that they're using, they're, they're intact because they're, they're likely breeding stock and they've already been screened for health. <laughs> does, does that make sense? And so, so that's when you look at those percentages is that it's pretty low. And then you look at that. So you go, well, in, in reality, it actually might be even lower. And then, like you said, there there's very few studies that actually includes a, a healthy representation as far as working dogs, which, you know, if if I'm going to step out on a limb and just make an assumption, I'm going to say on average, the working dogs, especially, you know, with everybody doing a little bit better job doing their research and, and finding the right line and breeders are going to come from healthier lines. So I, I would say that, you know, if I just had to take a guess, you know, I'm not... Uh, a a statistician or whatever it's called or a vet but if i had to just guess that that probability is probably going to be even lower within the sporting lines just because we do have healthier lines but uh, it's obviously going to be there it's still a possibility that's correct yeah so what about the behavior both pros and cons you know i've told this story on the podcast before but it's, it's been quite a while you know one of my it honestly, it was it was my first uh, impression getting into the gun dog world. My first stop talking to somebody that, that was a quote unquote breeder uh, for dogs, and and I go down and and he was he claimed to be a trainer. Now I I, I know better than that, but uh, at the time, you know, we're we're trying to look at dogs, and he was just a goofy, quirky <laughs> old country boy, and. His solution for every problem in dogs was, quote unquote, cut the nuts. That, that's what he just kept saying. It's just like, well, you know, how do you fix this? How do you do this? And of course, I'm like a sponge asking every single dumb greenhorn question out there. But his solution for everything was get them fixed, get them fixed, get them fixed. And I'm like, well, you know, what do you do in case of a female? He was like, uh, sell her and get a male and get them fixed. And and so, you know, but there are people that that do live by that to where they have any kind of behavioral issues, social issues, even hunting issues and, and stuff in the field, there are advocates for just get them fixed and that they swear by it. So talk to me about what proof there is or may not be to some of the information in regards to how a dog's personality and behaviors actually change once they get fixed. So I, I personally feel that if you're seeing behavior issues at a, at a fairly young age, less than one, and I feel like if you do fix them, the males, not so much the females, that you might see positive changes with behavior, less fighting, less aggression, less jumping, running the fence, maybe a little bit more calm. But if it's older and you're having issues and you still neuter them, what I found is that those dogs are still going to know to jump the fence. They're still going to fight. They're going to remember last year's pheasant hunt and that dog's not, they're going to have that dog number that they fought with last year. <laughs> and so I just, I've seen that so many times where, and they go, well, shoot, neutering didn't work. And uh, yeah, so I, I think that if once they learn that behavior and they get that, 
engraved, then uh, they, it doesn't really matter. So um, to get them fixed, I think is only beneficial behavior wise when they're, when they're much younger, but then, then you're getting, then you're stuck with all the other issues we've been talking about. Yeah. I mean, it, and it does make all the sense in the world to where it's, it, you know, the, maybe those hormones and being intact drives them to act a certain way. But if, if given enough time to act that way, that learned behavior from those associations are going to be there regardless of whether you get them fixed or not. So it's still, it's still just kind of more of an exposure and day-to-day living with issue anyway. If you do a good enough job, you're a responsible owner on the front end and you can kind of prevent them from, you know, running the streets, so to speak, then, uh, you know, whether you fix them or not, you can avoid all those behavioral concerns. So once again, behavior comes back to the individual owner and, and trainer. Yeah, no, exactly. So, and just like your podcast a few weeks ago with Rick Smith, you know, if you treat that dog like a human, that dog's going to treat you like a dog. That's so true. And I actually want to get a shirt that says that just because I, I love that because if I tell a lot of people and their dogs are having behavior issues as puppies, like you just, you, you need to be the alpha. They need to learn quickly that. And then they'll, they'll trust that you're in charge and they don't need to be barking when Amazon comes to the door and that they'll be. And that's how my, my new short hair right now that she's a year and a half, I've never heard her bark ever. And, you know, I'm finally experienced enough to know and trained her right to where she doesn't run out the door. She doesn't bark. She's and she's just a good, you know, good citizen, so they say. And so that that's so important is I don't care if they have they're intact or not. You just you have to train them correctly. Have to. Yeah, that you you can't avoid that. You can't get out of it. And, you know, it, it, it's just interesting how many people still abide by that to where, oh, you know, issues having trouble training get them fixed. And I mean, I've even heard, you know, uh, a, a spayed female is, is a dream in the field. Like, you know, that's people still swear by that. Like a, give me a fixed female any day. That's, that's what I want to hunt with. And I'm like, yeah, all right. You know, it, it again, co- missing context, but yeah, the, the saying with, with Rick, I've been using that constantly. That's, that's probably my <laughs> new, new favorite quote. Uh, so, all right. We, we've obviously talked about the orthopedic concerns and, and, but when we talk about we get let's say we have a male we get them fixed uh the the concerns for the orthopedic stuff is gone because we waited till they're 18 months right but you said after they get fixed there can be some weight issues yeah. right how do we balance keeping the dogs fit and trim and condition the correct way with the fact that maybe their body doesn't recover or heal the muscular system as well because we got them fixed. Does that make sense? You know, I, there, there's, there's a big genetic component too. Um, you know, I find that um, there's some, some dogs, even after they're like my short hair, I mean, going back to a female, but you know, I spayed her before a heat cycle. And even at the age of nine, she's, you know, just a muscular little, little, uh, little pistol i mean she's she's got you can see all the striations and definition in her um she's just a great body condition score and we don't you know she didn't really do too much besides hunting seasons and she just doesn't gain weight um now go back to your question on the neutering those dogs and especially like labs and retrievers and even some of the short hairs that i've seen that have been neutered i think that when you do neuter them uh, that at that point you need to make a commitment to yourself and and your 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 dog that you're going to plan 
uh, you know, specific exercise and make diet changes of, you know, either lower fat or lower calorie, um, and then supplement in other types of, you know, carrots and green beans or other ways to make them feel like they're still getting the, um, you know, that they still feel replete with food. And so you what I think that like, so when I tell people and we're neutering a dog that I think has the potential to gain weight after I just say, okay, you know, I call them afterwards and just say, hey, surgery went well. Um, we'll see you at four for pickup time. Just, just remember what we're going to be fighting, what we're going to be seeing over the next six months to a year is weight gain. So today he weighs 65 pounds. Let's just keep him between 65 and 70. I'm not going to give you a number. Let's give you a range because that's more practical. And so let's make sure we do that. I'm going to email you some weight loss methods and different foods and maybe some supplements and keep them active and let's try to prevent it. So that's, that's what I would do is I think there's a huge diet component and treat component to that. And so, um, you know, we love our dogs and we love to spoil them with leftover steak or, you know, different scraps and different things or lots of different treats. And you, you have to be careful with that. You know, you really have to, you don't, because once you see obesity and overweight dog, then boom, here comes the orthopedic stuff just because of weight gain. And then, 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 then now you're hunting one field and it's going in the dog box and then you're hunting alone and that's, you don't want that. So do not want that. Yeah. And, and so many people, I think on the weight discussion, they, they don't really think of it in terms of the, the body mass index for the dogs, right. Compared to us, you know, us, okay. You gain two, three pounds. It's like, oh, that's just water weight. Well, if you gain three pounds on a, on a 35 or 40 pound dog that, you know, that could be upwards of 10% of their body mass. You're exactly right. Yep. And, it makes and, a big difference when it yeah. doesn't seem big to us. It makes a big difference. Yeah. So again, the, the, the context of it. So like, you know, that's where, again, just kind of common, whether you're getting them fixed or not paying attention and making sure that they get a good high quality feed from a reliable, uh, source goes a long way. You know, obviously I, I feed you canuba and I've been really happy with that, but let's say if I had a, a dog that we got fixed, that we were concerned about weight, maybe in the off season, I switch from that 30, 20 to go back down to something and, and try and regulate that a little bit more to where you do need to be putting your dog on the scale and that one or two pounds can really sneak up and do some damage on the dog to where you may not think five pounds is that big of a deal. But again, a 50 pound dog, 10%, adding 10% onto those joints in the off season, that can go a long way. And then you go out a month before season saying, all right, we're going to, you know, we're, we're going to knock the rust off and get in shape for dove hunting. Well, that, that, that 10% body weight can, can do some damage. Oh yeah. So yeah, it's just simple calories in calories out. So, and I, I personally find that, uh, I find that diet and what you feed is a bigger factor than actual exercise. Um, that's just me personally. So if someone says, oh, I'm going to keep the the diet a pretty hot ration, but I'm going to go run this dog, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, you know, you, you're going to see some change, but not compared if you do diet first. And, and I, I've experienced that with all of my dogs where, you know, it's cold and snowy here in Colorado and it's, um, you know, my short hairs freeze outside. And so I, I can't exercise them. So then I'm going to give them one and a half scoops instead of two and I cut back and and I see the changes and they didn't even do anything. And again, there might be, you know, breed and genetics involved with that, but I did it with my labs. And um, I find that the, what you feed them and what goes in and all the different proportions and calories and all that makes a difference if you can't exercise or if you just don't. And so I, you know, both are always the better, but I find that the, the food and intake and calories is uh, number one over exercise. And I mean, that's really true with us 
as well. I mean, it, it's it, we have another similarity with them in that regard. You did mention something about supplements. What supplements would you do you typically advise somebody, especially if there's a concern with a dog possibly ballooning up and and having issues after getting fixed? A lot of them is there's there's been evidence of different amino acids and different vitamins uh, that kind of help with metabolism. I off the top of my head right now, I can't think of any just because a lot of times you can just buy them online or there's different prescription foods that make it with that supplement. I mean, um, but the that's kind of where they, they target that. And then just like you said, you know, all the different ratios, 30, 20, 24, all the different percentages. But as far as like true supplements, you know, I'm a big believer in, in fighting fat with good fat. And so sometimes even some of the good aminos are, um, or, uh, you know, at the uh, omega, sorry, that uh, that can help with that. Um, but a lot of it is usually luckily in the food. And so some of the food that's supplemented with these vitamins and minerals that are more tied to and, and labeled for weight loss or, or weight control, uh, I think do have some effect. And some of those, some of those companies have, have proven it and have very specific weight loss foods. And, you know, they, they all label them different, you know, Hills, Hills science diet, there's is called metabolic and Royal Canin is called satiety and Farina's is called overweight management. And they all have their own name, but they're all kind of on the same same lines of what they're what they're doing as far as the vitamins and minerals and amino acids. So if I don't really have a specific supplement, I don't do it myself, but I do know that if I were to have a dog that had that, I would be looking into that and to talk to your vet about it. So, I mean, it, it kind of comes with know your dog, know your issues or challenges with each individual dog. And, and depending on what you, you need to address, there's a supplement out there. Like if you need to, if you need to get some more good fats, those omegas, if if you're having a recovery issue, maybe those amino acids, the building, you know, protein blocks to where that might help with recovery. Uh, glucosamine might help with, you know, joints and any concern with stuff like that. I mean, am I really missing anything? I mean, to me, like those three type of things are really, I mean, maybe something for like bone density, calcium or anything like that. No, luckily they don't really need a lot of that. They, we found that they just, too much of it actually is too bad. So that's why we waited till 18 months or two years old, right? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, no, really, just looking into, um, you know, kind of what we what we talked about. I think is the is the key. Then don't forget to look at mom and dad. Uh, you know, don't forget to, when you go buy a puppy to look and see. Oh, mom's pretty lame. Dad looks like a footstool. I mean, you gotta really look at, <laughs> gotta really look at you know what the parents look like. I think there's a big big connection there. So. Well, is there anything as you're kind of going through the studies or research or anything, is there anything that stands out to you or caught you by surprise that you thought would be interesting in, in covering? I know that, you know, a lot of this was uh, uh, high level stuff and, and, you know, each individual thing is going to be its own special case. But was there something that you, you're looking into this preparing that you're like, all right, I, I need to bring this up? I think the biggest thing that I took away from from really diving into this and talking with our orthopedic surgeon and looking at five, six papers and, and talking with you today, you know, I really think that there's five categories that they labeled and then they forgot about one that you brought up and that's the purpose. You know, you have the orthopedic side of things, you have the cancer, you have the behavior changes, obesity and everything we just talked about. The other category, which would be your hormones and you know, the adrenal glands and the thyroid and diabetes and things like that. And then in my opinion, number six is um, purpose. And for us, purpose is, that's huge along with the orthopedic. Um, I think that that's, I think the cancer is unpredictable. Um, 
I'm not a big believer in really buying into those studies yet until they do more. Um, and like I said, I do want to see breed specific studies so that, you know, and, and heck, who knows? I mean, hopefully maybe a PhD student in one of these universities that's a bird hunter will get funding from whoever to say, all right, we're going to look at 2000 German short hairs and 2000 wire hairs and 2000 V sleds and, and, uh, a hundred Spinonis just because we're not very many of those, but, <laughs> and just kind of really break that down because that's where I think it'll be important. And as well as the, you know, police dog, working dog side, you know, look at the Belgian mouths and look at the German shepherds and, you know, a lot of those where their purpose is, is, is very significant. And I think that we should, should dive into that a lot more and hopefully we'll see that someday. Uh, I do have one more question as, as we start to land this, land this plane real quick. Uh, I did want to ask, is the actual process for spay and neutering, is there anything new or different on the landscape or is it really just the, the tried and true surgery that everybody's been doing for years? Is there like a chemical option now? Is there anything that somebody's kind of screwing around with uh, that somebody might be interested in discussing with their own vet? The biggest thing now is the um, what we call the gonad sparing procedure. So for the male dogs doing a vasectomy, so the testicles are left intact. We just basically can cut the tubes that um, so they they are intact, but they're sterile. So that's sterilization compared to castration. And for the females, the uh, you you can do a uh, hysterectomy where you leave the ovaries. Um, now they'll still come into heat. They'll, they won't have any discharge, but they'll, they'll still have, you know, vulvar swelling, swelling, the male dogs will still be interested. Um, but that's a good possibility. Um, I will say that I did have a, um, hunting dog. Uh, it was a Vishla that, uh, the prior vet did leave an ovary behind for, for health purposes. She ended up having a, a skin tumor called mast cell tumor. So prior to removal, we, we did an ultrasound to see if anything was internal and, uh, there was uh, a nodule and a mass on the spleen as well as that ovary that was left behind. So I then went in to remove the ovary that was left behind, but on purpose and the spleen. And it was, but again, there's another genetic outlier, random case, you know, one vet, small population sample. But I found that pretty interesting where that dog's purpose was hunting and even show and, but not breeding. And they said, we're going to leave one ovary behind because that's the thing to do. And this was 10 years ago. And then Fast forward 10 years or well, I guess eight years when she was eight, there was cancer and there was an issue with that ovary. And luckily we, we fixed it and she's doing fine. But so that's the ovary sparing procedure. I will say that one thing that I do that's very different uh, when I do my surgeries now is um, we invested three years ago in a uh, instrument that's called a ligature. It's what we call a vessel sealing technology. So instead of using suture or basically, you know, medical fishing line to tie off and ligate all the blood vessels for the testicles and for the ovaries and leaving that form material inside to dissolve and go away. And it takes, you know, quite a bit longer. This is a handheld instrument that they actually use in people for vasectomies and women that have ovarian or hysterectomies where it's literally a handheld device that cuts and cauterizes and removes everything. And you're, you've, you've basically cut the procedure um, down to 10, 12 minutes compared to maybe 20, 25. So less time under anesthesia and the outcomes are much better. And so if any of the listeners out there are looking into having that done, I mean, I think it'd be worth looking into a a veterinarian that does it that way. It's kind of how they do it laparoscopically, but laparoscopic is, so usually a little bit more expensive, uh, takes longer to set up all the equipment. Um, you know, they go in with the scope 
and they have to inflate the abdomen so that they can get better visualization. That right there, the inflation can actually be pretty painful and be longer recoveries. We used to do it that way for certain dogs, the bigger ones, and I just felt that they recovered poorly. The procedure was very long just because everything had to be set up and the TV and the cameras. And then those, those are always malfunctioning, as you know, cameras are like that. And uh, so now the, the the method and the procedure that we do, um, it just seems fast and efficient and with phenomenal outcomes. And so um, I think it's going to be a matter of time before every veterinarian is doing it this way. Makes sense, man. Well, I enjoyed it. I'm glad that we finally uh, were able to connect and, and knock this out. I know I'll be seeing you here in a few weeks to to really get after what we really care care to do and and our passion. But I uh, enjoy you. I uh, appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule and uh, kind of educating us on a topic that you know. Again, it just it kind of depends on who you ask. And at the end of the day, you know, you just need to find a vet that you trust and uh, you know that you see eye to eye with and and bounce all the ideas and questions off of them, uh, directly. So, yep. Yep. No, I agree. And, uh, yeah, thanks for having me. It's great. Yep. Absolutely. All right. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Jay Brecky. This was presented by Standing Stone Supply, DT Systems, Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of obvious reasons why I would do an episode on spay and neutering. You know, we, we pretty much addressed everything within the episode, but th- there's a couple examples of, uh, you know, I've had some buddies over the past year or two. They've had issues with their older females that were never spayed coming down with pyrometra. Uh, one that comes to mind uh, more recently or, or I guess in severity purposes uh, old timer Bill, he had a female that went down it. I can't remember if it was last season or two seasons ago, but it was, I mean, it was like a week or two before hunting season. And all of a sudden she went down with some, uh, issues, uh, curbing from pyrometra and he had to rush her into the vet and have emergency surgery. And they, they barely saved her. It was kind of touch and go there for a minute, but he, he got it resolved, but he, she didn't get to hunt on, on his big hunting trip. So, you know, he, he lost one of his, uh, foundation dogs, one that he relies on, uh, for the start of the season. And, you know, it's just, it's kind of weird how these bird dogs, whenever they have health issues, it's kind of like, they seem to know, uh, the worst timing possible. You know, anybody that's ever had to go to an emergency vet knows it's always going to happen on a weekend. It's never going to happen on a a Tuesday at four in the afternoon where you can rush to your normal vet. You're going to have to go to emergency vet and spend, you know, two, three times the amount of money. That's just the, the world we live in. But also, you know, we, we, again, we talked about it in the episode is, is the people that still try and claim that, uh, getting a dog fix is going to magically, uh, replace or correct certain behavioral issues or concerns. And it's just not it. It, it still comes down to training. It still comes down to your consistency and, and making the correct associations and, and learn behaviors and stuff like that. So, you know, it's, it, it's one of those, that I don't think we're ever going to stop hearing people claim that, you know, neutering a dog is, is going to impact their behavior. As Jay said, you know, it, it's, it's going to, it could alter some of their behaviors in regards to, you know, their hormone level and how they interact with this or that. But overall, you know, if you're if you're concerned with your dog always barking out the window at your neighbors, cutting the grass or, or people walking down the street or something, don't think that getting them fixed is going to magically fix that. And then, you know, uh, especially with aggression issues, you know, there are some dogs that 
after they get fixed, you know, maybe their their testosterone goes down and, and they're not as combative or confrontational as they once were. But as Jay said, you know, it, it's still if you have a, a four or five year old male dog that's been doing it for for that long and you go get him fixed, he still has those four or five years of learned experiences and associations to fall back on. So don't think getting them fixed is going to all of a sudden magically turn an aggressive dog into a non-aggressive dog. It's, uh, you know, again, as we talked about in the episode, there's outliers to everything, but for the most part, uh, that's just not accurate. So uh, anyway, I hope you enjoyed it. hope you learned something. Hopefully it was valuable and uh, worth your time to listen. Uh, If you have uh, time tonight, then by all means, please check out the joint Patreon Zoom room I am doing with Nick Larson from the Birdshot Podcast. We are going to do kind of a hunting season preview or look ahead, uh, kick off, you know, just kind of a fun little conversation where we talk birds, dogs, habitat, scouting, you know, trips coming up. And, and of course, you know, his, some of his patrons will be on there. My patrons will be on there. And it's just going to be a fun little conversation, just kind of shooting it really just, just BSing and, and having fun talking about stuff that we all care and love and, and are passionate about, of course. So if you have any interest in that, please hit the, uh, the link down in the show notes or just go and type in patreon.com forward slash gundog yourself and then you can see the post with the link and uh, that'll take you right to it so again this is uh this is tonight august 29th at 7 p.m central time so check that out if you are interested and with that being said i'm going to go ahead and and wrap this up i appreciate everybody for listening and, and hitting download as always please if you haven't already hit subscribe so you can be sure to catch the next episode And uh, we'll talk to you then. Thanks, guys. Everyone seems to have the same questions or concerns when they start trying to decide which kennel to purchase for their vehicle. Perhaps it's time to stop asking all the questions and just design the perfect setup that meets your exact needs. B-Pro Kennel specializes in designing and fabricating custom premier dog boxes handcrafted right here in the USA from high-grade, lightweight aluminum. They'll get you set up with the size dimensions, lighting, storage, battery boxes with solar charging, and anything else you can dream of. Stop stressing over buying the wrong setup, just have to replace it again in a year go ahead and check out bprokennels.com and get exactly what you want if you're considering changing your dog's food soon then be sure to check out yukanuba pro performance their science-backed formulas are designed to take your dog to the next level of performance they also now have the new puppy formula to help your pup start strong and live active when looking at all the different food options remember yukanuba to help power their ultimate performance Hey, what's going on, everybody? It's Bob from Lone Ducks Gun Dog Chronicles podcast. I hope you just enjoyed the episode you just listened to. And if you did, I think you'll enjoy hopping on ours. We've got professional retriever trainers and upland bird dog trainers from across the country and world sharing their tips and tricks and great stories to help you and your dog get ready for the season. We'll see you there.